0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Archangels, ghosts, and Bigfoot. Oh my! It's just another night for supernatural girls. Real stories, real answers to life's biggest supernatural mysteries.
1: Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of Supernatural Girls Radio. I'm your host, Patricia Baker. I am here with my co-host all the way from Tucson. PK, how you doing tonight?
2: Absolutely fabulous. I've watched the snow melt. How about that? <laughs> well, we're watching snow, period. <laughs> <laughs> In our heart, it came and it's gone. Oh, well, oh, up our, at the mountain. It it plenty of snow and they're up there skiing now.
1: You are a blessed desert dweller. So tonight we have a really special show for everybody. We're going to jump right into it. We have the author expert on what happens when we die. His name is Dr. Kenneth Stoka and he's going to be joining us in about 10, 15 minutes. But right away we are going to get Maria Shaw on the show. Maria is our dear friend. She's been on before. The audience loves her, and that's why we had to bring her back to do a check-in with everybody. Astrologically, there's just too much going on, and Maria was kind enough to interrupt what she's doing to run over to our show tonight for a few minutes. And as you know, she is a great astrologer and a medium all the way from New Orleans. So, Maria, let's start with you.
3: Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thanks again for thinking of having me, and Happy New Year to everybody.
2: Yes, same to you. Same to you.
3: So
1: there's a lot happening, and people are running around with their head on a swivel, I think. And so it's great that you're here to let us know what you're seeing in the stars.
3: What's happening? How, what's the direction of well, this? Well, January may very well go down as the worst month of the entire year. We just have to make it through Mercury retrograde after February 20th, and there's going to be a lot more clarity and a light at the end of the tunnel. And I believe Yay. that's a lot of COVID vaccines will roll out here between now and March, the mercury retrograde may slow some things up. And for folks that don't know what mercury retrograde is, it's when the planet Mercury, which rules communication and travel and contracts and goes backwards and it'll go backwards the 30th of this month. So Saturday through February 20th. And that's not a good time to start new things and it slows things up, but it is a good time to review things. And then when it goes forward on February 20th, I think that we're going to see, you know, a second wave of vaccines come along and a lot of people uh, feeling more open, a lot more states being open, and then I think things will start to get somewhat back to normalcy in March. Uh, But we have a lot of planetary energy, you know, just within this week. We have the full moon tomorrow in the sign of Leo, uh, and that's good for shopping and gambling. Um, But it also, um, there's an opposition um, from Saturn and uh, the Sun, and so we may have some frustration in some of relationships. And then Pluto is um, conjuncting Venus, so that could show us the end of some relationships. But it can also be very good for Virgos and Tauruses. Um, So some people will benefit from that Venus-Pluto conjunction. And if you're single and you're out there in the next couple days, you could feel like you've met a kindred spirit or a soulmate but for relationships that are on the verge or teetering uh the verge of breaking up this this aspect could send them over the edge wow pretty powerful mm-hmm. stuff so mm-hmm.
1: what what else are you seeing in terms of uh things settling down politically things have been in a chaotic state there's a lot of strange things going on that don't seem to have a an obvious Explanation: As we were talking about right before we went live, the White House has been dark for seven days. Power outage, people are saying, but why? It seems very unusual. So, what are you seeing with with all of this? What's going on in that arena? Well,
3: we yeah, we have uh, some Neptune energy, and Neptune makes things foggy and unclear, and that is um, being challenged um, actually uh, for the last couple months. And I think that there's going to be more secrets revealed um, after Mercury goes forward and maybe in the next couple days before it goes um, retrograde. Because the Pluto-Venus conjunction, Pluto is also about secrets. And Venus can be about relationships and or money and power. So we may hear some secrets about what's been going on. Uh, that some things may be revealed that, that have to be reported. They can't ignore it. The mainstream media cannot ignore some things. And then I think that late February and March, things will, though, like I said, there will be some more clarity and people will see some things. But, again, you know, it really is going to be what the, the media reports or what wanna people, people want to hear because let's just say, you know, part of the country wants to believe a certain thing, the other part wants to believe a certain thing, and we're told different things. There's, there's so much confusion because of Neptune and Pisces. So it, it's been quite a quite a couple months, and I think that this month with Mercury retrograde will, will just confound some of those problems yet. But some things will be reported. Some things will be out. But, again, it, it, it's the mainstream media reports them.
1: Yeah, it's hard to get that to happen. They seem to have an agenda. Well, we know they do. We've watched it mm-hmm. go on for a long time. But I do want to give you a lot of credit, Maria, because when you were on the show quite some time ago, you predicted – that Trump was going to win but uh-huh. you also said that if the Supreme Court did not hear his case that he would not uh have be the, become the sitting president and that's what happened but you're the uh-huh. one who mentioned that on the air so i want to give you credit for that you're absolutely right
3: i know i think it was last march or whenever we talked like mm-hmm. right after the covid started we had talked about um uh, the election also, and I, I said there was going to be wide, uh, wide voter fraud, and this was right. like six or seven months before. Right. So, yeah, uh, you know, I, I believe that definitely happened. So, um, you know, th- this is a time, and I predicted this for five, six years ago. Oh my goodness, Pluto and Saturn in Capricorn, and 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 breaking down our country and rebuilding it. We haven't seen this type of energy. For hundreds of years, and a very similar thing happened around 1776 when we had the Revolutionary War. We had same astrological aspects, and we all know what happened then. So yes. we could very likely have something similar happen. But Pluto and Saturn take a long time to move through, and and the the um, the uh, the war or the, the entrance to the war, or whatever the beginning of the war, really didn't start in 1776. It was a couple of years prior same thing's happening now we have that that transit happening but it might take two three years before it all plays out so this isn't anything that's just going to go away um, easily we're going to see a lot more happen in the next couple of years people are still going to be
2: divided i can tell you that because of that pluto saturn
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah it's unfortunate Mm-hmm. Lots really of changes is.
3: with how we deal with money. With Uranus and Taurus, Taurus rules money. Uranus is change, and that'll happen. Uh, it's all, well, it'll happen. It's already happening. You know, some places don't want to take cash, only credit cards. I mean, talk about all the different changes in the banking systems. That'll that'll all come full circle by July of 2026. But we'll see a lot of the changes in 2023, and we can see a preview of what's coming. I mean, like right now, what people are talking about. Mm -hmm. But I I also want to mention something really cool that's happening, something to look forward to. Um, Middle of May, like around May 13th through July 28th, Jupiter, the planet of good luck, is going to go out out of Aquarius just for a couple months, and it's going to go into the sign of Pisces. And it's going to affect the whole world when it goes in there. And Pisces is about compassion and empathy and intuition and psychic and dreams. So we're going to, and it's also very good for um, disease and illnesses. And um, I think that we're going to see a big shift May through July uh, with the COVID also in a very positive way. But I think we're going to see also a little bit more peace. And I think people are going to turn more to spirituality. Uh, Your show, which is already popular, may double in numbers because of the fact that everybody's turning more when Jupiter's in Pisces to spiritual growth and a higher knowledge. And then it will go retrograde. Jupiter will go retrograde back into Aquarius, which rules technology and astrology. So astrology is, like, very popular right now. But we're going to see a lot of changes with um our technology and this spring is going to move pretty quickly too but you know where you are right now and what you know of with social media the internet even more changes coming by the actually within the next two and a half years and then jupiter will return to pisces december 28th and stay there for a majority of 2022 so we are going to have a more of a spiritual sense and you know an energy come when jupiter is in pisces and i think that's a good thing
1: oh yes We're looking forward to that, and thank you for sharing some good news. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. I think we we could all all use that. that Yeah,
1: we've had enough of the other. Well, Maria, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us this evening. We so appreciate it. And when you settle down, again, let us know. We'll have you and Joe back for the entire show.
3: Well thank you. We would love to do it. We just been on the road. I think last time we talked I was headed to New York and, and then uh, right. <laughs> I got bronchitis and now I'm now I'm here in Michigan doing an event. But we appreciate you guys and thank you for supporting our business too. Absolutely and give best our best.
1: to you and Joe and thanks again, Maria. Take care.
2: All right. Follow you every week.
1: <laughs> so that was great hearing from Maria, huh?
2: Yes, it was. You know, I, I enjoy listening to her because she's on a couple times during the month, and I'll catch up with some of the things that she's got, which is always very interesting.
1: Yeah. she it can be
2: very her, Absolutely. She
1: has a website, everybody. It's com, and pay a visit to her there. And she does great astrological readings with, and mediumship. You can check in with her on her website. But let's go to our guest for tonight. We have a very special guest who's written a terrific book that you and I both read and enjoyed tremendously. And the book is called When We Die Extraordinary Experiences at Life's End. And let me tell you a little bit about our guest, Dr. Kenneth Doka. Now, he has edited or written over 35 books on death and death related subjects. He's a senior consultant for the Hospice Foundation of America and was elected president of the Association for Death Education and Counseling in 1993. In 1995, he was elected to the board of directors of the International Work Group on Dying Death and Bereavement and served as chair from 1997 to 1999. The Association for Death Education and Counseling presented him with an award for outstanding contributions in the field of death education in 1998 and significant contributions to the field of thanatology in 2014 and a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2019. And we are so honored to have him with us tonight. So, Dr. Kennethoka, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much, and I'm, I'm delighted and honored to be on tonight with you.
1: Oh, well, it's great to have you here. You know, it's a subject a lot of people don't like talking about, but you have become an expert in grief and bereavement and offering support, but also you're an expert in some of these paranormal experiences. So tell mm-hmm. us how you got started in this, because it really wasn't what you had in mind when you started out, is it?
0: Well, uh, um, on, on both counts, uh, no, I, I, um, I didn't intend to get involved in the field of death and dying. There really was no such field when I was in college. And, um, and I certainly didn't, um, didn't expect to get involved in, in, in the research that I've been doing recently. And what happened is um, I was actually, when I started graduate school, I was actually interested in delinquency. And I was supposed to have an, a clinical experience at the Spofford Center, which is where New York uh, used to house its juvenile delinquents who couldn't be released to their parents. So if you wanted the creme de creme of delinquency, you might say that's where you'd go. <laughs> um, and, um, and then what happened is uh, a week before I was going out there, I got a message uh, from, my, um, from my supervisor. who said, guess what? I've changed positions. I'm no longer at Spofford. Um, There's no longer a a program there, but you can join me at Sloan Kettering, which is a major cancer hospital. And so, or or you can be released from your obligation because it may not be what you want to do. And it really was not what I wanted to do, but at the point in time, I really had no choice. There was no way to find another clinical experience within a few days um, and I really needed that in terms of my plan to, to graduate on uh, when I wanted to graduate. So I reluctantly did it. I've, um, I thought, well, the one good thing is I'll be working with, um, with adults, and most of my experience had been with children and adolescents. And then um, what had happened is that, um, that as I got there, he assigned me to work with dying children, and, and that began my 50-year odyssey in the field of death and dying. And then a number of years ago, um, most of my work was um, work on grief theory and, and, and working with the dying, uh, Terry Daniels from the Afterlife Coalition asked me to speak at their conference. And, um, you know, I was very reluctant. I said, it's not what I generally talk about. And, um, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm your person. But she was pretty insistent, and I ended up speaking there. And I ended up talking about the kinds of extraordinary experiences that people have um, in, in bereavement and in, in, in the dying process. And you know, and I, uh, my stance was to say, look, at this is this is what we found. This is what we researched. And you know, there are lots of explanations for them. Um, uh, nothing that fully explains them, but. Here's what we know, and and here's what we've experienced. And in many ways, many of these things we've experienced throughout culture and across uh, across cultures and throughout history. So I just kind of laid it on the line, and uh, and I was surprised how receptive people were. That's great.
1: That is so Definitely. great. And so, but it's a, that was must have been so challenging. I mean, working with dying children. How how did you cope with that?
0: Um. It was very, very tough, and um, you know, and and um, in some of my work, I've talked about different styles of grieving, and I'm what I call a very instrumental griever. I, I actually ended up writing a lot about it and researching a lot about. It. I gave platelets twice a week. Uh, you know, I'm a doer when it comes to grief, so uh, so twice a week I was on a gurney in 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 Sloan Kettering uh, giving out platelets, which unlike blood, you can give about twice a week.
1: Ah, that's so nice of you. Good. Gosh. Well, yeah, and it's something that, again, you talk about being a, a doer, moving, helping people also move through the process, because especially when it's the death of a child, it, it's very easy, I think, to get stuck in that because it is such a devastating loss. I Some people say it is the worst loss you can ever experience. I don't know. If, would you agree with that?
0: I think, you know, I always like what one of my mentors said, Rabbi Earl Groman, who said the worst loss is the one that you're you're dealing with.
1: That is true. You know, yep.
0: we really can't Very compare. Well put. Yeah, yep. but I've, I've always liked Earl's statement on that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, so true. It's a tough thing. We all know that it's going to happen, and we're always shocked when it does. So were you counseling the children and the parents in that position you were staff. in?
0: Yeah, and the staff, So, uh, because no, no matter how long you work there, there's some death that, that hits you very, very hard,
1: mm-hmm.
0: even if you're Imagine. a nurse or, or a social worker. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So when you worked with the children, did you have any uh, any discussions with them where they were seeing angels or spirit guides or they saw something you didn't see in the room? Did any of that happen to you?
0: Oh yeah, I, I, a number of things, and you know, and I, I just kind of held them inside. I mean, I you know describe. I consider myself a social scientist. I'm, I'm a Lutheran clergyman, so I you know I often I, I came from a scientific and and spiritual orientation, and a lot of that didn't fit in. But but there were different experiences. Oh, for example, where um, children clearly sensed um, that they were dying. Um, we had one little girl in Sloan-Kettering, for example, who had these little porcelain uh, horses that she would um, furiously guard, you know, uh, and very reluctant to have anybody touch them lest they break them. And then the last day of her life, she gave them away to her favorite nurses.
2: Ah.
0: Oh, how you know? sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, you know, but again, you know, I, I'm, I'm convinced that she knew that she was going to die that night, Um you know, I've seen um, dying people sort of almost um, reach out uh, for for something, you know, uh, just before they died. You know, almost you find a sense of arms being raised and or or uh, a body, you know, kind of rising itself to some degree. Um, you know, these were not uncommon experiences. And, um, you know, so again, I kind of just filed them away as, as sort of anomalies uh, and said, wow, that was odd. Um, you know that was strange uh without putting much much deeper thought in those days in into them
1: so <clears throat> you learned a lot it sounds like uh right off the bat when you went to work at Sloan Kettering. and how long were you there how many years did you stay there
0: oh no it was just a summer it was just a, it was just a that clinical was internship a summer.
1: that's probably yeah. enough i would think <laughs>
0: yes it was so, it was um yeah no go ahead no and then I I did some of my own research and 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 really have taught and researched and and written in the field. Um really 50 years. This will be my 50th year. Oh
1: my gosh. Now in the my book,
0: goodness. You got to remember I started at 5. <laughs> yeah, I'm only kidding. Of course. <laughs> oh no, we know it's the truth. <laughs> I started at 23. So you can do the math.
2: Okay. Um uh, well,
1: you talk in your book about a woman whose daughter died, and there was a very specific perfume that she liked. Can you tell us that story
0: yeah that was um that was the first time I ever came across what we we now call extraordinary experiences or post bereavement experiences um and and legrand did a, a colleague of mine, did a lot of writing on that and I was about um I was really just a young counselor i was twenty seven years old I was dealing with this mother whose daughter had died. She had died at, at 3 um of sudden infant death syndrome. That's late for that to happen, but still within yeah. in the range. It can happen up to 4 actually. And um you know, but again, as you get older, it's 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 more remote. Um but um but you know, she talked about the fact that um well, and, and what she was going to counseling for uh, was, well, number one, to deal with the death of her daughter. But an underlying issue was that she was saying, you know, um, I, uh, this was a horrendous loss, uh, as you can imagine. I, I mm-hmm. can't ever imagine experiencing this again. Um, I've never envisioned myself not having children. either. my husband and I have always thought about having a number of children. But I can't go through this again, and nobody can promise me that I won't. Uh, so she was really struggling with this conflict of, of should I risk another pregnancy, should I risk another child, and and, and potentially maybe the same thing might happen. We, you know, kids don't come with guarantees. Right. Uh, and so as we were struggling with that, one day she walked into my office. You know, remember, I'm I'm a young counselor. I uh, I haven't had much experience, and, and there wasn't much written in the field. And... Um, and she said, I had the most incredible experience. And she said, when you know, when, when my husband and I were going out or, or dressing up for an affair, um, I had this expensive perfume that I would put on, and uh, my daughter would always ask me to put a, a dab on her, and then she would go around the room, as a little girl would do, and have people smell how nice she smelled, and she smelled just <laughs> like mommy and, oh, and the like, you know, those okay. the lovely mother-daughter moments. Yeah. And she said when she died, the last thing she did was that she – Sort of, sort of anointed her with that perfume and then put the, the bottle of perfume in the casket. And she switched to another brand because this brand was too, as you can imagine, too closely connected with, yes. with her daughter. And, um, and when she came in that day, she said, I had the most incredible experience. said, I walked into my daughter's room, um, you know, to have a moment of meditation before I went to see you, which is what I normally do. And she said, and the odor of the perfume was was pervasive through the room. And she said, nice. I, I, you know, uh, uh, I've never smelled it. And as I said, we we buried the perfume with my daughter. I switched to the other brand. I said, I even called my husband in as he was getting ready to go to work, and he smelled it as well. You know, I didn't say, do you smell my perfume? He said, I you know, his response was, I, I thought you switched brands. And yeah. she said, I did, but you smell it. And he said, yeah, I smell it. Um, and so, you know, um so here I am 27 years old, you know, this looks to me like an hallucination and you know, and hallucinations are not good signs usually and I'm wondering if she has a break from reality, but she seemed um she seemed happy and she seemed contented and um and you know, and I was sort of confused and I I probably asked them the the right question. I said, "What did that experience mean to you?" I said it was my daughter's way of um Of telling me she was okay and then she went on and and ultimately you know soon terminated therapy and uh, she kept in touch over the years and um, you know she sent me pictures of her three kids as they as they came across and um, and even um, a a note about her first uh, her first child a boy's graduation from high school oh
1: that's so nice gosh so that was a big success and and, again, I'm sure, you know, the counseling was... And it was, was
0: excellent success on my part. You know, as I said, I <laughs> um, <laughs> I was shocked and I didn't know what to do.
1: But I, what I'm thinking is, you know, the support you were giving her and also the preparation she did each time before her session with you and then this moment that was so power, powerful of having her daughter basically contact her through scent. You know, something yeah. a scent that they shared how how amazing and and that is that's that happens a lot from what I understand with people that have passed where you could smell if they were cigar smokers or whatever you'd smell the cigar in the room, so have you come across this multiple times
0: oh yeah yeah as as a matter of fact um a number of years, you know, I, I never really talked about that experience because I, you know, I, I thought it was such an anomaly. And a number of years later, I was at a conference of the Association for Death Education and Counseling, and Bonnie Lindstrom did a paper on these kinds of experiences. And then, um, you know, as as sometimes happens at conferences, uh, once the last session is over, we convened to have a strong academic discussion at the bar. I'm only kidding about the strong academic discussion, but we, <laughs> we convened to the bar. And as we were sitting there, um, and these were all um, well um well published counselors, you know people who had done a lot of publishing in the field, we sat around and we all shared the experiences we had and the question came uh came up as to well, you know we've all had these experiences you know um, um you know i people have joked with me about never having an unpublished thought um and <laughs> and I could say and I could say that about my colleagues as well and um you know, this group, the high-powered group that was that was sitting with me, and we said, well, why didn't we write about it? And the answer was all the same. And it was in many ways the same reaction that our clients had. You know, um, most people have, have good – these experiences come out as very favorable. Um, but but they're also a little bit, you know, like you don't want to talk about it because you think people are going to think you're nuts, um, you know, uh, for for talking about it. And ultimately, Lula LeGrand, who's since passed away, did a lot of research on, on this area. And, and Bonnie Lindstrom, by the way, found that 60% of bereaved people had these, reported such experiences when asked. I routinely train my counselors now to ask about that, and, and, you know, and most of them will report similar kinds of figures. Sometimes it happens in dreams. You dream of the person, uh, very common. Sometimes you have a sense experience of the person. doesn't always have to be the sense of smell. You know, I, I talked with a widow once who said, you know, I slept with my husband for 50 years, and one night after he died I put my arm uh, and I felt the heat of his body, and I, I, I felt him for a moment. Um, so it can be, involve any of the senses. Um, sometimes it can be um, a symbolic experience. Lou LeGrand, for example, says that he got into the field, um, uh, not dissimilar similar to, to my first experience, where a woman came in, her adolescent son had died, and she said, "You know, uh, Dr. LeGrand," she says, "Whenever I come to your office, um, your your." The, the cemetery where my son is buried is between, you know, uh, my house and your office. And I always stopped there. And she said, today when I stopped there, there was a a, a, a hawk perched on his uh, memorial stone. Hmm. And, uh, and he didn't fly off right away. He kind of looked at me, cocked his head, and then slowly um, flew off. And Lou said, and that reminded you of your son? And her response was, my son's nickname was Hawk. Oh, my goodness. And then no sometimes, it, yeah. And sometimes it's it's an experience where, um, you know, maybe somebody else says something, which is like a message, or sometimes it's just a sense of presence. That was one of the experiences that I had was a a sense of a, of a person's presence.
1: Now, and, why do you think it is, Ken, that uh, there are people who still will point a finger and say, "Oh, that's crazy," or "You're crazy." I mean, we've had a big, big turnaround in our experience, with acceptance of the paranormal over the years. But, as you mentioned, there are still some people who refuse to accept it, and they do make fun of people who have these events happen in their life. Why is that? You're a sociologist, so am I. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I think that, number one, it it doesn't fit in with, you know, the the kind of materialistic uh, causal explanations that, you know, that we've been taught to uh to expect and to give, and um in some cases they you know they obviously don't fit into our spirituality, so they're uh anomalous experiences in some ways, and we can explain them, and we don't know what to make of them, so we don't talk about them.
1: mhm, but yet most of the people that you've encountered that have these types of experiences, it sounds like they are very moved by them in a positive way, or they also feel a level of closure or a level of support. So, it sounds like most of it's all good. And most helpful. of it is
0: good. Sometimes people have bad experiences, but um do you have you, know, any you, you can have...
1: tell us about?
0: Sure. Um well, you know, what probably one of them was a, a young boy whose father died. It's about a 7-year-old boy whose father died of of advanced alcoholism. Mm-hmm. and uh you know died and died of cirrhosis of the liver but had all the the signs of dt's and stuff like that and while the man was never um physically abusive to the child um unintentionally he he was often psychologically abusive to the child um for instance one of the things he would do this was in i guess the 70s do you remember the television show the incredible hulk
1: oh yeah oh yeah
0: well the kid you know liked that show and every once in a while when the, when the child was sleeping the father would come home drunk and then all of a sudden pick this child up from his bed and shake him you know so imagine being woken at 4 years old you know in the middle of the night and and being you know being lifted from your bed and 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 you know and shaken and said you know not not roughly but just you know was meant to be affectionately but was really abusive and saying yeah. I'm the incredible Hulk, you know uh-huh. um and they were frightening experiences of the child, and the child um had images of his father beckoning him into dangerous places and and as we dealt with the child's sense of ambivalence toward his father and his guilt toward his father uh toward his feelings about you know his negative feelings toward his father those those experiences stopped, but that would be an example of a negative one
1: mhm, yeah, yeah, I can understand that where you know they don't i don't we had um Charlie Chaplin's son on the show, and he did not have a happy time with his father. And his father, I think, had some diagnosable condition, and it it made it very difficult for the children and the family. And at the time, uh, one of my co-hosts was a medium, and we were both picking up on the fact that his father did want to talk to him, and he wanted nothing to do with it at yeah. all. And totally understandable. Again, where the relationship was, was so unpleasant. Um, there there wasn't an opening left. You know, all those doors had closed, unfortunately. But that's how it is when there's yeah. significant amount of, of distrust and abuse and whatever. So we totally respected what this person wanted. But... Yeah, so it's not always a happy time when a person who has passed wants to come back and try to set things right. Like for some people it's just too late, too little, too late. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I can understand that, though, with the little boy not wanting to see his father (laughs) at any point after, he probably wanted to just feel nice and safe, and he was pretty deserved, too, to feel
0: safe. And he and was, yeah. And, and as I said, after he was able to work through it, I think those images stopped. And I, I think, you know, part of the reason was he was able to, uh, even at a young age of about eight years old by the time we finished therapy, to to understand his father's problems and issues and um, and to have a sense of forgiveness toward his dad.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes exactly that helps to let it go so yeah a lot to all of this there really is and now for for you moving forward in this whole uh this whole research world of death and dying there's a lot that's been said and been written about i mean i remember dr kenneth ring down in connecticut years ago who seemed to start this whole thing off the tunnel uh, the light. You've also worked with people that have had near-death experiences. So tell us about that.
0: Yeah, well, it, it's interesting. Of course, you know, um, many of them are are the kind of classic things that, that Raymond Moody and, and, and King talked about. Uh, what was interesting is, you know, some of my research brought me into the work of Alan Kellehar, um, I'm not sure if he's British or Australian. I, I've met him a number of times. He's a really good person and great researcher. Um, but you know, but he's really examined these cross culturally, as as a couple of other people have, like Shushan and uh, and the like. And what's interesting is they don't always follow the same mold. Um, and they're certainly affected by culture. You know, um, uh, I forget uh, whether it was Kellehar or Sushan who talked about you know that in the, in the South Pacific. Um, these these near death experiences were, were often somewhat different. In one, I remember they talked about this person seeing himself go into this canoe, and and this canoe was drifting into this fog, and all of a sudden uh, an ancestor told him no, uh, he wasn't he wasn't due to come into and to, and, and, the, and the and the and the tide brought him back, and then he woke up, uh, you know, uh, after that experience. So you know, so again. Um, they seem to be affected by by culture. Um, they're very very common. Um, uh, again, you know, they've experienced them across cultures and throughout time. So, um, and, and again, that's the thing you know that I always try to stress in this book. You can disagree with the interpretation of these experiences, but you can't ignore the fact that these experiences happen, and they happen to a lot of people, and they've happened throughout history, and they happen across cultures. Um, you know, and then not all near-death near death experiences are positive too. I I remember um, dealing with a young uh, a young person who uh, uh, had a drug overdose but survived, and his image was falling into this abyss, and having these gargoyle-like figures uh, kind of come out of the um, of of the walls of this abyss or the the middle of this abyss and And make appearances and and in kind of mocking uh tones say "You've gone too far this time, you've gone too far you know in mm. horrifying s ways
1: what about so, so yes, yeah, so that wasn't pleasant, but did that help that person to then make different choices um i i i
0: you know i I didn't follow up with him beyond that, but it certainly seemed to have an impact at the time, and um uh, I would hope it, it 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 did. You know, addiction can be very difficult to uh, to deal with.
1: Yes, absolutely. And what about people who try to commit suicide and have a near death experience, end up coming back? What about people like that? Have you worked with anyone who's had that happen?
0: I, I have not worked with anybody who's come back from an attempted suicide. But, um, but you know, again, some of the research has, has shown, uh, has demonstrated that their experiences were sometimes not positive, sometimes uh, positive, and sometimes life-changing and, and sometimes not. You know, um, obviously, we're humans, we're individual. Uh, you know, nothing affects anybody the same.
1: Right, and we all have our own belief systems, but again, that tunnel of light yeah, and, and it, is something that's, that's been talked about a lot. And did you hear that a lot from people? What's that? The tunnel of light going down through a tunnel yeah, of light. Yeah,
0: that, that, again, that's that's an image often that comes out in Western near death experiences. Um, and and I and the thing I wanted to add before is that the research does show that most people, and not all, but most people who have near-death experiences report much less anxiety about death than they did prior to the experience.
2: Which is a wonderful thing. Right. Uh, Ken, when a person is uh, in that state where they know that they're starting to pass, and they end up having the, uh, a connection with those that have gone before them, I know when my mother was at her time, was, she was getting ready to pass over. She kept dreaming of the different members of the family, but she kept feeling that there was this boat that she should have been on with everybody else. And the boat would not, It would. she would get to the boat, and then she would wake up and she would not be able to go. And eventually she did tra- transcend and make the journey. But it was watching her go through this towards the end, the coming and going on a day to day basis she was tired and ready to go, but it was the as if they didn't anticipate her being ready to go
0: yeah yeah there there's um there's another set of experiences that I write about and 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 again you know um some of the work I draw on our colleagues uh pat kelly and uh and 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 Ann, um who talk about what they call nearing death awareness and Mm -hmm. you know and the example of your mother really touches on two of those themes that often people um, who are ill and who are imminent uh, where dying is imminent will often have report you know kind of symbolic and and brief uh, symbolic experiences um, that are usually of three types. So in 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 one case, it's that they're getting ready to travel, and you know I'm sure your mother was quite ill at the point in time, and you know and and you're hearing a talk about catching a boat and catching a ship, and you're probably thinking what mm-hmm. you know you can barely get out of bed or you can't get out of bed. Um, another one is is of course another sign that that ne- of nearing these nearing death awareness is where the person says, yeah, I spoke to grandma the other day, and and you know and she she said she's. Uh, preparing a place for me, or or she's looking forward to seeing me. And you're thinking, Grandma died 15, 20 years ago. You know, what's going on? Um, And then the last kind of experience that Callan and and Kelly talked about, which which I experienced in my father's death, was sensing death, um, where they just kind of, in my father's case, my father was was dying of cancer. Um, He knew that. Um, He was very aware of that. Uh, that, you know, that he, uh, after a respite uh, uh, cancer that he previously had uh, reappeared um, and uh, relapsed. And um, he knew he was in hospice care. He knew what that meant. Uh, You know, so it was no no doubt that he knew he was going to die. He knew he was in a dying process. And then um, one day he woke up and he said, am I dying? And again, the point he was making was not do I have a disease that's eventually going to kill me? He was talking in a very imminent way uh, about death. And my mother called me and said, um, uh, you know, you better come over here. Something's wrong with Dad. And, I, you know, I, I got on the phone with Dad. I live about an hour and a half away at the time. And I said, are, you know, are, are you okay? And he said, yeah. I said, are you in any pain? Are you in any discomfort? And he said, no. He said, but I just have this feeling that I'm dying. So my, you know, my brother and sister. I think my we we took turns taking care of him. I think my sister was already there, but my brother and I uh, came to the house, to our family house, and uh, and we all sat with him and we reminisced and we had some, um, you know, some some really good time together as we talked. Even uh, you know, and and then about eight o'clock that night, he said, you know, I, I'm feeling okay and I think you should all. Go back to your rooms now and you know and uh and he died during the night and my sister felt very bad and and my way of looking at it was um was that I think he needed us there, but I think he couldn't he couldn't die when we were there um that we had to be he had to get some level of separation um and he died very peacefully in his sleep that night, wow, but that's you know nice. again. What Callanan and Kelly call their book, and I think that's a a wonderful title, is Final Gifts. Because often we may misinterpret those moments. We may think maybe the person's getting too much morphine or something else is happening. And what Callanan and Kelly are saying is this offers an opportunity. This may be a way that the person is symbolically or obliquely signaling, maybe even unawares to themselves, that death is very imminent. And this is a great time to, to do what we did, to come together and to and to share those moments together. Um, you know, I remember talking to my father and um and, and one of the things my father said to me, you know, because I, I was the late child and I came at the height of his business career, you know, and, and um and, you know, and he was at what I would call a classic 50s father, you know, good provider and, you know, and had some connection. Uh, but, he, you know, my mother was the primary caregiver of the children. You know, on weekends, my father would take us out and do things. He was a good dad. Um, and, I, you know, and I shared that with him. And I shared some of my favorite moments with him, like when we'd, uh, we'd go and watch the boats on the East River. You know, we, grew, we lived in New York City close to the East River. Um, and my father turned to me and said, you know, but I always regretted I never took you to a ball game. Oh. I said, Dad, I said, I hate it to go to ball games. <laughs> I said, when I do your eulogy, one of the things I'm going to say is, I never had to endure a ball game with him. <laughs> and he laughed heartily. <laughs> oh, and then I told well, him a story that, um, knowing that, my friends once. Um, Invited me to go to a ball game with them, and I, you know, and I was trying to, you know, it was the evening game, and they said, "Come on, you know, it's one game. We'll all hang out together. We'll have a good time at Chase Stadium," and and I went there not knowing it was number one a twilight doubleheader. Oh no! Two games <laughs> in one, and that the first game lasted ten innings, and the second game lasted twenty six innings, breaking a record at the time. Mets versus San Padres. <laughs> my friends, I would have laughed, but they thought it was hysterical that I was stuck with them. Oh, and I okay. shared that story with him, and he was laughing immensely. And I always say, you know, um, you know that, that story shows to me uh, proof in God and proof that he has a perverse sense of humor at times.
1: <laughs> yeah, really? Uh, oh, my God! Um, well, it sounds I, like I your family so had
0: a lot of reconciled. closure.
1: You know, a lot of really good closure with your dad and a a really beautiful passing for him and a, a wonderful ceremony honoring him. But a lot of people go through loss of a loved one. that It's quite sudden and it's quite shocking and they're not as prepared for it. And we find a lot of those folks seek out mediums who can communicate any last messages or, or any questions or whatever. And have you had any experience with people using mediums to, to get the closure they missed while their people well, were alive? Well,
0: closure is a funny word in grief. You know, I I, I I always tell my students to bring closure to the word closure because we we always have a bond with the people who died. Um, and, you know, and we always, we continue a relationship with them in our own way. Um, so, you know, uh, so that's just my my sense of that, you know, and not trying in any way to be critical here of of people who find that term useful, because many people do. Um, But my notion would be, um, you know, and and I've seen people seek out mediums, and and my notion is, um, yeah, if that helps, um, then then do it, and and let's talk about it, and let's talk about what you're expecting and what you're wanting. So I think one of the things that's happened to me is I've become much more accepting, of, uh, of bereaved clients who choose to do that and often find that, um, you know, uh, almost, for lack of a better word, a therapeutic alliance can can work very well.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, PK, your friend and my friend George has helped a lot of people.
0: Right.
2: Definitely.
1: With his work Definitely. with mediumship. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, and and some are even able to help. I know... George was so mad at me once because <laughs> this this woman called me uh, frantic because her son was missing, and I gave her George's number. And unfortunately, he saw that her son left the house with a gun, and the mother confirmed that, yes, that did happen, and then george said this is where i see him i see him under this bridge and it's a small bridge it's with a concrete pad and oh. he is uh you're going and his body is partially covered with leaves but he did tell himself that's what i'm seeing he said i hope i'm wrong but he said you will have to go looking yourself because they these people were from another country they thought the police would uh, be able to find him and they were not. So but George described exactly the place that he saw when he did this um for this lady and then of course George called me up screaming at me, Don't ever send me something like that, it was so traumatic <laughs> So <laughs> It's like I'm sorry, but I knew of everybody that we know you would help this lady. And and it did turn out, unfortunately months later the body was found exactly where he said it would be found and covered by leaves. So, and he did die of a gunshot wound, self-inflicted. So it was, um, you know, it was a a bittersweet ending to all of that. But certainly George was instrumental in in trying to help uh, the family to at at least have some idea of where to go looking and what to talk to the police about. So that was a very helpful thing. And George is very specific and detailed in what he sees and, and describes. So... Yeah, I mean it's it can be helpful in in a wonderful way. And like you said, you know, coming in to see you and, and get counseling about all of this, it becomes one more thing you get to talk about, which is exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah, and as I said, I, I, you know, I'm 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 no longer adverse to these kinds of therapeutic alliances. Where one day I would have said, No, I'm not having. I don't want anything to do with this.
2: What opened your mind Hi. to it? What's that? Do- Go ahead. Go ahead, Patricia.
1: Oh, I just wanted to know what opened your mind to this.
0: Well, you know, again, uh, I think probably fifty years of experience, and you know, and as you as you look and you listen to people, um, you know, uh, hopefully uh, you begin to reevaluate. Um, you know, I, I it'd be sad if somebody thought at seventy three, or not quite seventy three, but I will be in a few weeks. Um, what they uh, had had the same kinds of thoughts and intuitions that they had at twenty three. That would show to me a total lack of growth. Hmm.
1: Yes. Good point. Good point. Yeah. Huh?
0: You know. Uh, so hopefully, K- you're you're open.
2: Yes. Okay. Kay, you had a question. Yes, I wonder how many times that you've dealt with people that get a premonition that there's going to be a loss or a death within a family member or know ahead of time that these things are coming and how yeah. to best work with that.
0: Yeah, um you know, and, and again, um well, I, I have a whole chapter on that and, and some of these premonitions are, are amazing uh, that people have had historically over time and then I'll I'll talk about current cases. You know, uh probably two of the uh of the classic examples of premonitions of death are um, are where um you know Mark Twain. Of course, you're familiar with that story. Mark no. Twain, the American author, was born the year that Halley's comet came, and I think it comes every seventy six years if I have my astronomy right. And I he always so. said he would. Uh, he came with the comet, and he'll leave with the comet. And that's in fact when he died seventy six okay. years later, again at the appearance, the apex of Halley's comet. Hmm. That's um, quite a premonition. Uh, uh, <laughs> what? That uh, yeah, turned,
1: oh turned out to be quite a proposition. It turned
0: out to be one, but, but he's spoken about it publicly many, many times. It's well documented. And mm-hmm. um, less well documented, but but generally accepted, was that Lincoln, prior to his assassination, shared with his his close companion, bodyguard, and one of his his former partners um, that he once had a dream. Um, and as he woke in this dream, he woke up. Uh, in the dream, uh you know still dreaming, of course, and he heard crying and weeping in the white house and he went downstairs uh and he asked a young soldier who was guarding what was going on, and the person looked at him like like he was an idiot and said, "Haven't you heard the president st- that was was shot and as he walked into the room, um he saw himself lying in a casket.
1: that's very specific,
0: my goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and as I said, that you know, um, you know, um, pretty well accepted that that you know that this dream occurred. Uh, as I said, it was reported soon after by this person whom he was very close to, and he was very evidently very disturbed by the dream. Um, you know, and again with premonitions, I think you have to be very very careful. Um, you have to explore them. Uh, sometimes they're very legitimate. Sometimes they they really fall in, and you know, and and other times. Uh, you know, they they may be induced by cultural experiences. Um, you know, um, I don't I don't know where you are, but in some parts of the country, um, the Sunday paper, part of the Sunday paper, gets delivered on Saturday. So the you know the maybe on Sunday they deliver the sports section and and the stuff that can really change but you know the news but the art section the opinion section the comics might be delivered on a Saturday afternoon just to you know um, and I always liked that when that happened, when I was in an area where that happened because you know you do not have to wait for Sunday morning to read everything and uh, and some of these are obviously printed beforehand and uh, and what happened is this old Italian guy uh, went out to his house, and um, and and Sunday's paper was delivered, uh, you know, this Saturday afternoon. But what happened is a hawk, um, a dead, hawk, not a dead, hawk, a dead, uh, a dead um, crow was lying on the paper, and the person felt that this was a pre- that this was a um, an omen, you know, because there's premonitions and there's omens. Right. That this was omen that he was going to die tomorrow, and uh, uh, you know he basically called his kids to say goodbye. And uh, his son got very frightened. And uh, I had done some grief counseling with with the son's wife, and he called and asked if I could see his son, in, in, you know, his father, in an emergency situation. And we spent some time together, um, and um, he didn't die that Sunday. Uh, you know, despite what he considered to be an ominous omen. Um, But, you know, but to this, I've lost track of him. This happened many years ago. But every year on that date, he would always make sure that they had the father with them, you know, uh, in a family gathering, uh, just as a kind of, of way of reassuring the father that they were all together.
1: Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, you do have to be careful how you interpret some of these things but you in your book you talk a lot about dreams and how a lot of people get visits from people who have passed in dreams so tell us something about that
0: yeah well it, you know it, it it's interesting because um very and again this is one of those often um post bereavement experiences that people have and um And sometimes they're what I call or what's called visitation dreams, which are very, very specific. And so, you know, it's like your dad coming to you and said, remember I told you the insurance is in the gray strong box, not the black strong box. Yeah, that's Uh, helpful. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know, very specific situations. Um, And then others are much more obscure, what what we call highly symbolic dreams. Um, One of my clients talked about a dream in which she was – uh, she was close to her mother. Her mother and her in this dream were traveling together on an airplane, and um, and the mother went out to use the restroom. Went up to use the west restroom, and she seemed to be taking a, a rather long time um, in, in the restroom. And um, and then the announcement came on, you know, that we're getting ready to land, and please return to your seats, and you know, buckle your seatbelts, you know, those kinds of announcements, mm-hmm. and. Um, and she called a flight attendant over, and she said, "You know, my mother's in the restroom. Can you check on her?" And then the woman comes back to her and says, "There's nobody in the we- in the restroom, honey." What? Yeah, you know, and and she couldn't make and she couldn't make sense of this dream. Now, you know, one of the things that happened is, um, you know, she had just spoken to her mother a few days before her mother died. They they lived a couple of hours apart and then her mother had and her mother was very healthy, played tennis you know did all, all those kinds of things of a woman well into her seventies and then um the mother died suddenly and she you know she knew that, but you know but she was troubled by these dreams what these dreams meant and um and you know and one of the techniques that I use when I do dream work with clients is i I asked people to title the dream, mm-hmm. and as soon as she titled it, she understood it she titled it vanished into thin air ah. And then yeah. she said, that was my experience of my mother's death. It was like she vanished in thin air. One day she's playing tennis and talking about the fact that she's, you know, doing this, and the next day she's dead. Mm-hmm. You know, Perfect. so that made that dream sense, yeah. you know. that. Um, so, you know, these kinds of dreams are, again, very, very common um uh you know uh, uh, after a death and sometimes before it sometimes they can be a premonition that you're going to die you know and and you have to remember you know i always say this that um our minds pick up all kinds of information and all kinds of data and they um they um and and our body and they and they interpret our own body signals um um I, I remember one little girl uh came to her mother um and she said um, mommy I, I think i dreamt there were bugs in my hair um and sure enough she had she had head lice Ugh. yes Gross. you know that she'd gotten in in obviously in her kindergarten class or or you know or who knows where she got it but the point was that you know that her body was sensing things mm-hmm. um that, that she didn't see yet or, or you know or the mother didn't see yet. Um and you know it was just at the very beginning they were just you know, they, they she had just caught it obviously. But um but the body was saying wow and, and you know and, and our bodies talk to us in their own way. Yes,
1: they do. There's no question that they try to pass messages along. Most people don't understand how to read them, so it's good that you're able to help yeah. them with that. And what about ghosts? I mean, what are your thoughts on that and the experience of, well, again, of people who talking you
0: know, you, you go back historically, you go back even into the Bible, uh, and, you know, you have accounts of Saul uh, speaking to the ghost of Samuel. Um, you know, uh, go into Shakespeare and, and, you know, see how many ghosts come into into his plays. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's fascinating. Um, I don't know what to make of ghosts, but... Uh, but you know I-, I told the story of an our family and I-, I have an interpretation of what our ghost means um but um we would always kid about the fact um that that our grandmother Hungarian grandmother's ghost um haunts our basement and her ho- our house has been in uh, our the house I I was brought up in has been uh, has been in our family for 5 generations now which is unusual for a house in the middle of New York City I think
2: yes Oh, but
0: oh, well, you know, but my my uh, my grandfather bought it. You know, my my mother lived there, my sister lived there, and now my my niece owns the house, and and of course my um, my great nephew and niece live there as well. So five generations of family have grown up in the same house, uh, a two-family house in the middle of Astoria, New York, and um, and you know we've all had experiences in the basement where we've. Strange things have happened you know um, in one case my uh my niece when she was a baby, one of my sister's daughters when she was a baby was um uh, uh you know we we had a lawn, we had the laundry stuff down there it was like uh, you know where we had the washer dryer it was unfinished basement in those days and uh and so she's sitting there uh you know on on a on a blanket on the floor. Uh, and she looks like she's talking to somebody, you know, um, and having this animated, you know, baby-like conversation with, with somebody. Um, and so we've always joked about, you know, about grandma in the basement. Um, now, the real story about grandma is, is very tragic. Um, my grandfather, who had come from Hungary, um, he was engaged at the time to a woman, and, um, and you know, like many immigrants, he was going to get things done here, and then he was going to send for her. Uh, and when he was ready to send for her, her message was, uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm not interested in going to America. I fell in love with somebody else, and, uh, you know, the uh, essentially the, the 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 Dear Frank uh, equivalent of a Dear John letter, you know. Yeah. Um, and so the parents said, we found somebody else. And um and so she went out and um you know, we our, our sense of it is that it was a loveless marriage. Um this woman may have experienced um uh, depression, um I don't know if it was a long standing issue. We know very little about her. Where my my grandfather, who I never met, who died before I was born, was kind of like a larger than life kind of figure, you know. Uh, everyone who knew him, he was you know, he was Uh, He was a strong Protestant, he was booming, he was uh, happy, you know, he was all these things. But my grandmother's story seems much sadder, and she eventually committed suicide uh, by taking rat poison in the basement. Oh. Um, And, you know, and and I think, you know, among other things that this story does is it gives her a sense of her. Uh, It gives us a sense of her, and it gives us a sense of the continuing bond, uh, you know does she really haunt there you know i can't say yes or no um uh, if there were really ghost buses who could uh who could uh, come in and, and ascertain um uh, we'd probably hire them just for the hell of it um yeah why not? <laughs> Because I think we, we'd be interested, but uh, but it's been a you know it's been a, a family story for four generations now, and and in every generation, you know, my son. Uh, when we finished the basement, there was a point in time that my son, because um, we live about an hour and a half from the city, where my son got his first job in the city, and until he got married, you know, lived with there with my grandmother, and you know, and and he would always say, I always felt there was something down there. We never told him that. You know, because we didn't he want to creep it. him out. to Live there, yeah. But he said, you know, I always felt he, he. One day, came up to my sister and said, you know, it's really strange when you're in the basement. Every once in a while, I, I feel like there's somebody there, and and you know, we all kind of smiled and said, well, do we tell him the story? Uh, and then <laughs> later on, we had the same experience with my daughter-in-law when she before she was my daughter-in-law, and she'd visit her him, him there, you know, and spend some time there with him, um, that she had the same kind of experience. So it's. It, it's hard to explain and hard to encounter, but we believe it's benign. Uh, you know, uh, we believe she's, she's you know, happy to be with family in her own way. Um yes. You know, uh, God forbid the next non-family member who buys that house, but no, we're not right. taking responsibility for that.
1: <laughs> now, what about that, angelic yeah. presence, Ken? Do you, have you had any experience with that with yourself or with patients when they are in... You know, the hospital or in hospice, or yeah,
0: yeah. I, I think I, um, I, I think I, I in the book I tell a story of a of a lovely little girl who was dying of leukemia. Now remember, this is fifty years ago when leukemia in those days was a death sentence. You know, right. um, if you had leukemia, eighteen months, three years, anything beyond that was a gift. Mm-hmm. you know um, yes. and and so this one little girl was dying of leukemia and all of a sudden she brightened up and she said oh they are so so pretty uh, and she described these sort of angelic figures of light that were to her all over the room wow. and she you know and those were her last words they're so so pretty mm.
1: oh my goodness and then she passed away oh my yeah oh
0: you know, 50 years in the field will give you a lot of experiences.
1: Oh, yeah. Now, you were with her in the room when that happened?
0: No, I was not with her, but the story was, was well told. Oh, yeah. I, I had been with her earlier and had been with the family and certainly had visited her throughout the course of her illness, but I hadn't witnessed that particular thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I have seen people seem to reach out to um, to something as just before they died. Right,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was just curious about the angelic presence, because especially with children, I would imagine, that the children would see them and sense them quickly. So, yeah, well, that's a beautiful experience for her. They're so seeing something yeah, and so filled with light. Yeah.
0: I think it, it is the family's... Um, sense of loss greatly. I mean, they you know, they still miss that person. They still deeply loved her. Um, you know, it's hard to go on without her presence, but, uh, but I think that that gave them, at least in that difficult time, uh, a, a sense of hope and a sense of comfort.
1: Yeah. It, it must be so difficult, too, for parents with children who are dying to find any comfort in that whole experience. I mean, it just seems so unfair. How does faith it is. handle that? What's that? How, how does their faith handle that? How do you help them through that? Well, That's a and, tough
0: one. Yeah, and again, the answers are um, to people who, you know, uh, you know, for some, it really creates a health, cri- uh, a faith crisis. Um, you know, I remember one uh, 15-year-old girl who was die- uh, dying of, of leukemia when I was at Stone Kettering, and um, every day the father would leave on my desk some article. Of a fifteen-year-old child who had mugged some other kid, you know, and, and 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 there was a lot of spiritual anger, you know. He was kind, of, and and he was leaving these things on me to say, you know, if God's interested in taking a fifteen-year-old, here's a good candidate.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: You know why my daughter? You know, and there was a lot of anger about that. Um, others, you know, will will um, will somehow seemingly to accept it. You know, uh, again, we all vary in different ways, but. But I think for a lot of people, it really is a faith struggle. You know, um, remember Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote the book "Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People," and his inspiration for the book was trying to make sense. I mean, here was a rabbi, here was a man who who followed God, and trying to make sense of his six-year-old son's death from progeria.
1: Ooh, that's a terrible one. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, because I mean, obviously now we we know certain things about health. And our lifestyle choices, and how that impacts our health or creates illness. So you know, when you see somebody with lung cancer who smoked for thirty years, you kind of go, "Well, they smoked for thirty years." Not that you'd wish anything on anyone like that.
0: Oh, no, and, um, and 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 you know, as as as, a, as the author of disenfranchised grief, you know, which talks about losses that aren't supported, we certainly want to give that person the same support, you know. Um, right. You know, uh, you do. anybody but else. Then when you- yeah.
1: When you look at a child, and there's there's no, I mean, again, you can't sit there and say the same thing at all. This is a child, no. an innocent yeah. child. It's, so I can imagine there's a lot of rage about that.
0: Oh, a, a lot of rage. Sometimes a lot of anger. Um, you know, uh, a lot of you know, uh, a lot of concerns, particularly at a time in our history. You know, and we have to recognize that this is an unusual time, in in the sense that. Um, that you know that this is probably the last century, maybe, and 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 still primarily in Western areas, and and maybe not always as as strongly in, in some of the poorer areas of our city. You know, we don't expect children to die, but that's a that's rare in history when you think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, historically, children were one of the most death prone populations.
1: That's true. It is. That is a high high rate of death normally in times past. But yeah, yeah we'd yeah. Like I to mean, think I remember
0: once. Um, I remember once you know when I first started working at Sloan Kettering, um, I was talking to my mom about you know what I was experiencing. I was still living at home. I was twenty three, and uh, you know living at home that summer, and um, and I remember. Um, I remember my my mother said, and we call these family booms in in my family, where somebody just throws something at you that you thought, well, I I should have known that or I should have been told that earlier. And so I'm talking to my mother about the experience that I'm having. mother said, did I ever tell you I had a brother who died?
1: Oh, my. Out of the blue. I said, no. I
0: said, said, in 23 years, that should have come up at least once, huh? (laughs) (laughs) And my my mother said... "Well." You know, he was four. I was three. I, you know, I, I I didn't really, you know, think much about it, you know. Um, so I went to my grandmother, this loving, um, family-oriented Hispanic woman, and I said, Grandma, I understand you had a son named Juan. Um, and she said, yes. She said, I was very, very lucky. said, I had six children, and five of them survived to adulthood. Mm. But, again, that was over a century ago. And um, and so in those days, you you know, if you had you had a lot of kids because you didn't expect they were all going to survive. And unfortunately, that's still the place in many sections of the world, even some sections of our cities, or our country.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I don't know. It's just it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating topic. But sitting with people in grief uh, for for a long time is a part of your career. That's so demanding. I give you credit. Yeah.
0: Well thank you. you know, you you have to learn your and and you know, you have to learn your own ways of self help. and it took me a long time to do that I think.
1: Yeah. I mean a lot of it I think
0: I'm sure you do similar things and have had have had to find those lessons too.
1: Oh sure. Yeah, but that's a very challenging challenging job. And I think it, it says a lot about how grounded you have to stay. Through all of yeah. it, you know, you're their anchor in so many ways, where they're spinning out, you know, and being and going through such a, a large amount of feelings. And so many, so many times, you just feel like you're at the mercy of those feelings yeah. of loss. You
0: know, and, and and what I've learned is is sometimes all you are is a presence, but that's enough. Yeah, and now, I remember once. Um, Coming into Kettering, and I, I didn't only work with children, but I worked with some older, you know, some other people as well. And and there was this woman who was um, who had just been told that her cancer was terminal, um, and uh, and she was sitting by the window, and and tears were just streaming out of her eyes. And uh, you know, and here, as I said, I'm 23 years old. I you know, I don't really know what to do. So I, I you know I sat with her I I took her hand I was trying to figure out something I could say and and no words seemed to come you know so I just sat there uh for an hour until her daughter came and um uh, and I you know I I came back and I thought gee I would really really screwed that one up you know mm-hmm. uh how bad was that <laughs> you know I and um And 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 she died a few days later, and then the daughter came to me, and said, um, said my mother, um, you know, when she said my mother wanted to thank you, uh, for for you know for being with her when she got the diagnosis or the prognosis. And 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 I thought I did nothing, you know, (laughs) but 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 I realized you know sometimes it's just your presence that makes all the difference in the world, and sometimes it's sometimes you're better off if you don't suck talk. But you're just being with them,
1: well, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, what can you say that how do you find yeah. words for something like that
0: and And sometimes it's just the ability to to be with them and and to you know to to stroke a hand yeah um that's that that's all you need to do
1: Now, p k were you with your mother when she passed away?
0: Yes, I
2: was. My sister and I were both there then. No. Yeah, she had uh, she had esophageal cancer. Mm-hmm. And Bad one. It was, but the things that she could see and go with prior to that, I would go in in the morning to visit with her, and the dreams that she would have at night about this, the boat that came that she couldn't get on, and she would get oh, yeah. so like, upset about yeah. it. And then they had a party, and they didn't let her go. It, and each day it was a different event. But the last <laughs> was oh. she it was almost board.
0: anxiousness to, it, to, to, meet, to meet death.
2: Yeah, she was ready, definitely yeah. ready. Yeah, Was very yeah. proud of the dignity of which she accepted all things that were taking place. I don't know if I could have done it, but she did a beautiful job.
0: Yeah, and um, what did what did you think of the boat at the time that she was telling these stories? How did, what what sense did you make of those events?
2: I, I kept picking up that she was ready to make a transition,
0: but uh, okay.
2: God wasn't quite ready for her yet.
0: Okay, okay. Thank you, PK. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's – are you finding that people are more accepting of talking about death and grief at this point in time? You know,
0: I I, I think the answer to I, – I think generally as a society, yes – but I, I think on an individual level it's uh, it's uh, always goes back to some are and some aren't um, you know I, I always used to laugh cuz my um uh, my stern hungarian aunt um would call up my father when i you know when i first started in the field i i sometimes did lectures at local lutheran churches you know um on on grief and dying and death and my my aunt was very my aunt b was very involved with that you know with with the lutheran church and so she would call my father and say, oh, I, I see Kenny's going to be at Long Island Lutheran um, this this Thursday, um, and, you know, and, and my father would say, uh, what's he speaking about? And she'd say, she'd get very quiet and say, you know, very parched and say, I, I can't talk about it. You know, and, and it used to amuse my father immensely because he said, what, what are you talk about, mugging old ladies? You know, what's your conversation <laughs> that your poor aunt B can't even talk about the topic? <laughs> Is. You know, some people are willing to talk about it. Um and and some people, you know, maybe will never be ready. Yeah. Um and, and you know, and again it's it's just the differences in people. But as a whole, I think we are much, much more open to talking about these kinds of events and um and you know, and, and giving credence to some of the experiences we've been talking about today. You know, um you know, there's one, one, one experience that I do want to talk about because so many people have shared it with me. Is it okay if I, I introduce a topic? Of sure. Go ahead. Uh, one of the things that, that, that really, one of the things that I learned about in this, in this um, and then have since experienced when I started writing and research on this, was the phenomenon of what we call terminal lucidity. Uh, and that's where people who are comatose or... Uh, in in some cases, people with severe intellectual disabilities, people we used to call retarded, uh, would would all of a sudden, um, at the moment of death, or maybe people who are comatose, regain consciousness. Uh, you know, and and that's a, a kind of remarkable experience. And as I've worked with hospice over the years. Um, you know that 's not an uncommon experience where you have a patient who's you know who's uh, who's maybe in a coma or maybe has dementia, and all of a sudden right before death um, they have a sense of lucidity and and they're able to engage in conversations sometimes at a level they never could even before their illness you know the The first account of this is is a remarkable one uh, and it 's a woman by the name of Katie Elmer who was in a um an institution um for for people who were mentally disabled in germany and um and she had never spoken in her life and then uh was was comatose and the day before she died she sat up and sang a coherent hymn of her own dying oh my goodness and and it had such a remarkable effect that it was witnessed by the you know the chief physician and, um, and and the chaplain, um, who were just amazed by this experience. And it really was life-changing for them. And, you know, uh, one of the things that it really led them to do was when Hitler, who became chancellor, uh, proposed euthanasia for, for those populations, they um, strongly, really at, at, you know, a tremendous personal risk, uh, deeply opposed it, uh, saying that no life, you know, that their experiences with Katie... Had shown them that no w- life is not worth living
1: at any age. Yeah. No. And,
0: and as I've talked with hospices, you know, it's it's I I you know I've asked how many of them have experienced these kinds of things, and it it's amazing how many do. And and again, you know, sometimes that has to be interpreted to the family, much like you know, as as again another kind of final gift where this may be a good opportunity to say what they need to say, because you know some families may misinterpret it as a rally and the person's going to get better uh, when really this is a, 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 non, a another indication that death may be imminent and this is a good time to say what you need to say.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. And in some cultures like ancient Egypt and, and other places around the world where there's a, a different set of beliefs, it, death is seen as the ultimate journey. So yeah, it's yeah. something you prepare for and look forward to rather than being afraid of.
0: Yeah, and and that's, that's, I think, the case,
1: yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that, because being afraid of death, I would think you would find it, as as a counselor to people, very inhibiting fear to have.
0: Yeah, and and, and also very natural, because it is the unknown. Um, You know, I I remember one mother... um, Really did, gave a wonderful description to her son, who was at that time dying of leukemia, and and it's one that I still to this day find comforting as as I look at it, and um, and evidently he was born uh, he it was a very late pregnancy, um, and they always would joke with the child. who was about nine at the time of his death. That you know it took him so long to uh, to get you know to come out of the womb. You know it was a family joke. You know before his illness that he was very reluctant to leave mommy and they would joke about that and Mm -hmm. and as he was dying he said what what is heaven like mom what do you what do you think is going to happen and she said well you know you remember johnny when you were you know uh we often joked with you that you you didn't want to come out of the womb uh that you wanted to stay there she said we always joke that you found it very comfortable and you know he kind of nodded and smiled and said yeah and and she said well what would you think if i if, if we could get you back there and you know, and it's like any nine-year-old boy's. Oh, it's disgusting! Don't even say that. You know, <laughs> the kinds of things that, that a nine-year-old boy would say when presented with that kind of option. She said, "Well, you know, I think it's going to be that way when you get into heaven, that you've you've transitioned into another form of life. Um, you may not remember much of what you experienced before, um, but I don't think you'd want to go back either." Mm-hmm.
2: Wow. Right. And I've always
0: found that a very comforting explanation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that Definitely. is. Now, let's go back to the near-death experience people. When they come back and they can tell you about what they saw, Is do they talk about particular religious figures? Like I know a lot of people say they felt they were in the presence of Jesus. Um, other people say other entities were there. What have you heard
0: uh, all, all of the above. Uh, all of the above, and and you know it's interesting. I, I recount a few in the book, and again, with one, it's uh, you know it was an old Italian guy, and and uh, and he felt him greeted by the Virgin Mary. Um, in another one, um, it was it was a young man who had um, grown up in a very dysfunctional family, uh, went to Fresh Air Fund Camp. You know, the, 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 there's still a camp in New York. Uh, originally came from the Herald Tribune Fresh Air Fund. Do you remember that? I don't know if you, you know. That, no, that was had that a like num- a
1: camp for troubled kids, or what was
0: that? Uh, it was a camp for poor kids. For poor yeah, kids. Who wouldn't get to, um, not necessarily troubled, but for him, it was a refuge. Mm-hmm. Um, and he went there, started going there, and he was six he went there as a junior counselor went there as a senior counselor and said uh, and the, you know and and the, after that i went to another camp meaning basic training uh you know so he spent all his teenage you know all his his years going to that camp and in his near death experience he was at the camp again oh because it was a place of safety
1: oh, okay So no. he didn't see any entities or religious figures he just went to the camp
0: he went to the camp. And then another one, which was unusual, was a woman who described herself um, as as an, an atheist. Um, you know, she didn't believe in an afterlife. She didn't believe in God. And in her near-death experience, uh, she liked to garden. She found herself in in, in this beautiful garden. Um, and a figure came over to her and said, we're, we're not ready for you yet, but showed her the garden and said, You'll like it here and it for her it was a transformative experience. She said, I you know, I thought when you died you, you died. That was it. You know, you, you lived on in the memories of others. But to her sense it was, well, you know, maybe there is more. Um so for her it was a really transformative experience.
1: So what is your thoughts on life after death? What what are your how do you conceptualize that?
0: That's uh, an interesting question. You want to get me in some trouble now,
1: huh? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We want <laughs> to know. Well, <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm I'm a traditional Lutheran. I I believe in an afterlife. I believe in heaven. Um, and I think now I'm um, I'm I'm more curious. <laughs> you uh-huh. know, I still think there's something that happens after. Um, I'm not. You know, and, and I I do think we survive and, and there is an afterlife and, and uh and the belief. But um you know, I guess I, I've always been a non judgmental kind of person and I'm willing to say, um, surprise me.
1: <laughs> In a good way. <laughs> good way.
2: Yeah, well that's reasonable. So so kind that was next? a safety answer.
0: <laughs> yes, that? it was very diplomatic
2: that was a um, safety answer <laughs> uh, it was a safety answer
0: but a true answer i i really um yeah. you know uh because you know and and i think if you've read the book one of the things it's it's probably short on are definitive answers to what these experiences are you know i i lay out i try to lay out you know these are some explanations and i really want to leave it to the reader to say, well, how do I make sense out of these? And, you know, and and as I said, the message I want to give is that these experiences are common. They go across cultures. They've gone through history. Uh, You know, uh, you can't deny them. How you explain them, well, we can argue about, but you can't deny that they happen.
1: Yeah, that's a good place to start. Again, the name of the book, everybody, which we did both read and we did really enjoy, is Very When good. We Die, Extraordinary Experiences at Life's End by our guest tonight, Dr. Kenneth J. Doka. Yeah, this is its a great, great book. It really is. I mean, it, you, you go through Thank a you lot so. of information. Yeah, Yeah, it's really important, I think, to read. We all have gone through loss, and someday we'll be making that journey ourselves. So it's great to have a book like this and, and to have your insight. Uh, it's it's important. So it's a wonderful book. And what's next for you, Ken? What are you going to be doing next? Do you have another book on the horizon?
0: Um, well, you know, I always have to do a book for the Hospice Foundations, so or we're doing a book on the COVID crisis this year. Uh-huh. Um, and then I, I'm not sure um, – I may uh, try something a little bit more um, um, classically sociological. Uh, I've, you know, I've I've always wanted to write something on 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 sociological theory. Um, you know, um, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm I'm open. That's great.
1: That's great because you're definitely a writer. So I know there's got to be another book oh, coming definitely. out soon from you. <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: then I, you know, and then one there day is. I want to write a novel. Oh, good for you. I, I like historical fiction, and have you ever heard of Lambert Simmel? No. No. Okay, well, you, you know of the War of the Roses, right? Oh, yeah. Right. The War of the Roses, and Henry VII, the father of Henry VIII, you know, uh, finally wins it. And, of course, there are a couple of pretenders to the throne. And one of them was a young boy by the name of Lambert Simmel, who uh, was was defeated by Henry's forces, but... Henry the Seventh was surprisingly kind to him and gave him a job. As as in, in, he's only about ten or eleven years old, uh, he was a figurehead. You know, they they claimed he was one of the lost princes of the Tower. And um, sorry for the noise. My cat has seemed to discover something that uh, was interesting in the in in the slides. Um, so, uh oh. So okay, we have a, a
1: possible novel. Well, that, that is great. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap this up, but please do keep us posted on what you do next. It's been a really good discussion tonight. With I've enjoyed you. it
0: immensely. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, well, it's our pleasure. And again, everybody, uh, the name of the book is When We Die, Extraordinary Experiences at Life's End. And again, thank you, Ken. And next week, everybody, we'll be back with another show. So until then, we will see you on the Blue Highway. Good night, everyone.
0: Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another radio adventure with Supernatural.